It's January 7th, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Brian Ozawa. First, we'll cover some local science and tech stories. Then, Shanoa Farnsworth from Blue Startups is here to tell us about the next cohort. And Mor- Marco Morawek is here to update us on the fast-evolving Firehose Project. And finally, we'll talk about unmanned aerial vehicles. We'll get the latest updates on drone policy and new amateur uses. Ted Ralston and John Johnson are here to tell us all about it. Have your questions and thoughts ready to call in or tweet us. But first, the headlines. A prototype wave energy device is on its way to Hawaii after nearly three years of testing at Falmouth Bay in Cornwall. England, dubbed the Lifesaver, the device is a large ring, more than 50 feet in diameter, with several independent power takeoff units. The Lifesaver, created by Norwegian firm Fred Olsen Energy, is designed to generate as much as 400 kilowatts of power from ocean waves, and we'll see the next real-world demonstration project off of Oahu. The device's iconic square torus hall design increases the energy produced from roll and pitch motion compared to more common buoy designs. And its low profile reduces drag forces, which reduces the impact of more aggressive sea conditions and also reduces its visual impact. The long-term test in the UK did not involve a connection to an onshore electrical grid, so the power produced all this time was merely conditioned and measured before being dissipated off through a large heater. In the next demonstration phase, the company notes that this large component will no longer be needed. Uh, Alan Taylor, spokesman for Fred Olson Energy, said in a statement, the next step is to demonstrate this experience to new markets and set the scope for the next stages of development of technology. While the company did not specify where the Lifesaver is headed, its arrival coincides with planned wave energy testing in Kaneohe Bay. Last year, the U.S. Navy committed $9 million in additional funding for wave energy research, predicting that the Kaneohe test site will be the first in the nation to connect wave energy to an active power grid. Now, you know, we've been following some of the different kinds of... um, wave power generation tests that are going out in Kaneohe Bay. And this one actually kind of caught my interest because of its very unique sort of shape. You know, it's shaped like a huge lifesaver. Life it's a large ring, and you can, I mean, basically you can walk on it. It's about uh, 10 feet across. Mm-hmm. Uh, goes about 3 feet down. Um, but specifically comparing it to um, previously the tests in Kaneohe Bay were like ocean power technology. Mm-hmm. They developed what looks like a regular sea buoy, mm-hmm. but it was generating power through its motion. This is not a small uh, small device, even though I almost want to call it like a vessel. Um, but on the other hand, because it doesn't rise above the water, it has, like they're saying, even if you had like 10 or 11 of these offshore, you might not even see them because they have that low profile. The amount of energy is important, certainly. And, uh, you know, um, the other part of the announcement that they made was about how the UK is at the forefront of this. And Mm -hmm. they're also at the forefront of, say, geothermal energy. So I kind of like, although it's a long way to go, this direct transfer of wave energy or even geothermal technology from from Europe to Hawaii is very impressive. Yeah, they've got an animation uh, video that's on the web, and it shows the you know, basically this this large lifesaver sort of bobbing up and down in the water. And evidently they, you know, anchor it to the bottom of the seafloor. And then because of its motion, uh, depending on the waves, it's, it's generating energy. Right, and not just one anchor. There's an anchor right, for each right. uh, power takeoff. Very cool. Well, in other alternative energy news, a nine-acre estate on the Kona coast of the Big Island will install one of the state's first large microgrid energy storage systems as part of an ongoing plan to operate entirely on self-generated solar power. 
Pittsburgh-based Aquion Energy announced today that it will supply a one-megawatt-hour battery system to Bakken Halle. It's owned by Earl Bakken, who is inventor of the pacemaker and founder of Medtronic, but Bakken has lived in Hawaii since 1989. The estate will get its power from a 176-kilowatt solar array that will generate 350 megawatt-hours per year. And then the uh, battery and energy storage system will provide nighttime power on a daily 8-hour, 6-hour charge and discharge cycle. Bakken said in a statement, I want to demonstrate that using a solar and battery-powered microgrid is our best solution now. The installation will enable us to meet our around-the-clock power needs with solar generation and will reduce our fossil fuel usage by 97%. He told the Honolulu Star Advertiser that he hopes his off-grid estate will serve as an example for the Big Island and that once the project is completed this summer, he'll offer tours to the public and to students in particular as an educational opportunity in support of renewable energy. Though Though he officially retired... For uh, more than 20 years ago, Earl Bakken remains active in philanthropy. He is a key benefactor to the North Hawaii Community Hospital, and he provided founding support for the Emiloa Astronomy Center in Hilo and the Kohala Center. Now, there's an aerial picture of his nine-acre estate, and it's uh, quite beautiful. In fact, I saw a tennis court and a swimming pool on it. And, you know, if when I get to be 91 years old, I want to <laughs> be as influential as, uh, as Bakken is. I mean, you know, to actually have this... Basically, it's it's a, a photo of uh, the area under construction mm-hmm. to build this, this solar array. So it's it's just basically you know getting started. I'm sure it's going to be done probably within the next uh, six uh, six to eight months from now. But but still, at 91, this guy's got a lot of spunk. But he had a lot of a lot of history, a lot of innovation, and uh, you know he's definitely an asset to the Big Island. Mm-hmm. I had known about him. I think he probably came up as a school report when I was in in college. So it's good that he's here and that he's really trying to be. Involved with you know he's not just building an estate right. and living on right. it. He really wants to use it, use it as an example mm-hmm. to engage with the community. So good on him. Mm-hmm. And finally, here's a couple of stories we wanted to share with you. Internet traffic between Southeast Asia and the U.S. is slow this week after an undersea cable was cut. The break is in the Vietnam segment of the Asian American Gateway cable system, which passes through Guam and Hawaii on its way to the U.S. continent. The cause is currently unknown, and the break may take up to a month to repair. And if you're a maker, a fan of makerspaces, and especially if you have an opinion about the way one could be run, High Capacity, one of Honolulu's first makerspaces, is hosting a general meeting and town hall tonight. High Capacity did move to the Manoa Innovation Center last year and is looking for input on its direction as well as possible events for 2015. Everyone is welcome, so you can go to the Manoa Innovation Center tonight at 7 p.m. And for more information, you can visit highcapacity.org. And I understand uh, they've got a special guest, uh, Senator Glenn Wakai. He was our special guest first. That's right. <laughs> and then, uh, and of course, you know, if you don't already know, he heads up the, he chairs the Committee on Economic Development and, Tur- uh, and uh, uh, Technology. Yes. And of course, uh, uh, Glenn's been doing a good job of uh, getting out there and checking out what's happening with the uh, tech community. Yeah, well, speaking of special guests. That's, that's right. Well, joining us here, in the studio, Shanoa Fonsworth from Blue Startups is here to tell us about the Blue Startup cohort and uh, what's coming up. Uh, what kind of specialty or special sort of focus are you looking for in this next uh, cohort? So we want to welcome you to, sh- to the show, uh, Sh- Shanoa. Hello, hi guys. So, uh, how many of this? Uh, how many co- cohorts have you had already? Is this number four? Or we f- are on number four right now, and we're recruiting for number five. 
And what is it about number five that you're really focusing in on? Yeah, so we are launching a travel tech track. Mm -hmm. And we feel, obviously, there's a natural alignment for Hawaii with the sector. And it's something that we think Hawaii can really be a significant player in. And uh, we have all the resources here to make that happen, but just haven't quite uh, put all the pieces together. So we're trying to focus some effort on that. Uh, We've recruited some uh, mentors to specifically mentor these startups in the travel tech space, um, including Michael Troy from Starwood Hotels. Um, He's Mm. a a technology fan and uh, one of your your colleagues there and reading Wired magazine and living <laughs> living it living uh, the tech world living in the tech world but he also uh, his day job is in the hotel world mm-hmm. so he's a perfect fit for that I think this is that's a fascinating focus because, of course, even just last week we're talking about how technology as an industry um, can work alongside and fare with the large industries that dominate our economy, travel and tourism, um, certainly being the biggest. Um, and and there have been conversations for years about bringing those two together. So this sounds uh, uh, long overdue and, and certainly exciting. If someone's saying, "Well, what are we talking about? What is a travel tech company? Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the? Are there any like household names that you can think of that would fit that category?" Sure. I mean, there are web services and mobile apps um, that would kind of fall into that and software as well. So like Airbnb, is that a travel Airbnb tech Airbnb would be travel tech, uh, TripAdvisor, mm-hmm. Expedia.com mm-hmm. if you want to go back a little ways. <laughs> um, you know, but solutions like that, certainly software, back-end solutions, and then also consumer-facing solutions, mobile apps that can allow you to book your travel or uh, you know, activity bookings. We actually have a company right now in our c- cohort four that um, is facilitating bookings online for adventure travelers. Mm. So we've been a natural magnet for these entrepreneurs anyway, and we're now just kind of putting our, um, you know, uh, our intentions out there more directly and mm. saying, yes, we really want to focus in on this sector. And we really want to gather all of our um, assets in the sector that we can can and really help these companies move forward. So just like the uh, sort of the energy accelerator uh, where mm-hmm. they, I think, made it a point to try to uh, provide some connection between the entrepreneur and the actual industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see trying to do that as well with some of the, you know, the, say the properties in Hawaii? And, and I think there's opportunity for them to maybe apply some of their their new products or something within that yeah. in that sector. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for example, in in speaking with Michael Troy, I asked him, you know, what are some problems you're trying to solve right mm-hmm, now? Mm-hmm. And he gave me a list of those problems. They're on our website as well. And so we're not specifically just looking for entrepreneurs that are trying to solve those particular problems, but if we are able to find matches like that, then he can bring that to his Starwood properties here in Hawaii which, if that works, can in turn roll out to Starwood Properties worldwide. So it is a big opportunity for our entrepreneurs, both locally and um, folks from elsewhere that want to really get into the travel tech market. Hawaii is a great place to start. You can access decision makers and every large travel and tourism brand in the world right here. 
Now, there were headlines recently about someone who just came up with a way to search for low travel fares by hacking the system, mm-hmm. by uh, skipping a city and saying, even though you're trying to get from, you say you're going from Hawaii to Seattle, but you only want to get to San Francisco and you just don't take that second leg. And now everyone's mad about that. Let's say you have a brilliant idea like that. Um, what What is the prospect? I mean, what what, what is the, the lure for someone listening right now on Kauai saying, oh, I've got this app that I've been developing. What, what do you say to them to bring them into the family? Yeah, so I'd say that we are going to provide them with a host of resources that are in the industry. So other technology startups that are in the industry, for example, 3D Travel and Activity Res, if you're familiar mm-hmm. with those yes, companies, yes, right. they've both agreed to help in mentor our, uh, these new companies and bring them into the fold, so to speak, as well as, again, these more traditional um, VPs and CEOs in the hotel space. I've been um, speaking with many of them, and they will all they all want to help. They all want to see this connection between tech and travel happen here, oh. right? It's something we've been talking about for a long time. Something that just came up recently as well at the Hawaii Business Roundtable discussions mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. the innovation economy. Mm-hmm. And they are also really in tune with this concept. And so they are they want to roll up their sleeves and help make those connections as well. So where can somebody go to actually sign up for this number five cohort? Or apply. Apply, yes. Oh, well, apply. <laughs> yes, yeah. you have to apply. It's it's competitive. I always um, want to warn people. That, but, of course, please do apply. It's um, on our website, bluestartups.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's the deadline to uh, The deadline that? is January 15th. It's, ah. it's quick, but just get something in there. It doesn't have day. to be perfect, and, uh, and we'll that's take a, a look at that's it. That's like the day before the uh, demo day, right? That's right. So Cohort 4 graduates on the 16th, and uh, the deadline for application for Cohort 5 is on the 15th. You're keeping it rolling. It's a nonstop here. <laughs> <laughs> just like this radio show. you know, It always happens the following week. <laughs> well, thanks, Shanoa. Thank you. And, of course, now joining us is uh, web developer and UX product manager, Marco Morowick, and he's here to tell us about the uh, Firehose project. Welcome to the show, Marco. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. So, you know, you're like almost a regular, and you're not even living in Hawaii. You're on the mainland most of the times, but this Firehose project is something that you've been successfully rolling out across the country. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the new features? Yeah, so we, after, you know, having a lot of coding workshops over at UH and HPU and Iolani Punahon and also Harvard Business School and all over the, the mainland, we started doing a lot of uh, focusing more on online. So right now we have a 12-week program that's mentor-driven. So mm-hmm. you'll be matched with a professional web developer that guides you through our curriculum. At the end, you come out either with your startup idea launched, fully developed, live on the Internet, or you're ready to join a company, a tech company, startup, um, bigger tech company as a junior web developer. Now, online education is a big deal. My wife is totally into Khan Academy. She's catching up on math. Um, I'm taking a class on Udemy, and there's Treehouse, and there's Lynda.com. Um, but it doesn't sound like you're specifically going in that same space. There's something, I mean, because it's hard to compete with, with just sort of putting something out there. But you mentioned mentors, so it's a much more personalized experience. Yeah, correct. So we're bridging the gap of after you've gone through Treehouse, Khan Academy, Udemy, you know, after you're done with that, what's the next step to get you to a professional level where you can actually build your own ideas out and not just follow a tutorial? And that critical thinking is where the mentor comes in, helps you, guides you through, and actually pair programs with you just like they would do in the real world if you had a job and you would be part of a technical ah, pair team. Pair programming, um, what is that? Pair programming, great question. That is one computer, two developers, with one person talking, the other one writing, and we basically develop a feature or an application together in that way. So does that take place, uh, is that part of the course where you have this uh, pairing take place and somebody's actually talking 
yep. to the developer. So there's a whole support system that goes on next to the platform. So you, week, so you meet weekly with your coding mentor. That's a person that's just responsible for you. You pair program. It's all online, virtual. We use tools like Google Hangout. We have different software, but something very similar. So mm -hmm. you see the person face-to-face, -face, like via your computer. You see their screen. We share the keyboard. And then we also have like office hours where everyone comes together virtually. So you said this is 12 weeks. How much uh, time during the uh, you know, any given day are you spending sort of in this environment? So it's totally self-paced. It's up to you. So we have students who spend about, we say the minimum is dedicate 15 to 20 hours to coding every single week. That's mm -hmm. kind of the minimum. We mm -hmm. want you to be committed and really want to push that forward and be dedicated to the craft of, of coding. And then people push it all the way to 40-plus hours a week, and they do that full-time. They quit their jobs, and they do that online. How does that work with the mentor? I mean, does it have to – it has to sort of coincide with the mentor's Yeah, uh, so mentorship right? sessions are like hourly sessions that you're getting. So you have the platform where you go through, run through guides, watch videos, and then mm -hmm. like solve coding challenges and use the same tools as the real developers out there. And then the mentor comes in and layers more knowledge on top of that. Mm -hmm. Now – where have you found these mentors? Uh, are you one of the mentors? Um, yes, I do some mentoring. We have other senior developers from PayPal. We have CTOs from former Techstars, comp or Techstars companies. We have uh, one of our mentors that I'm really proud of is the former head of product and VP of engineering from Bitly and Flickr. That's really good. We're mm -hmm. getting some more um, mentors from startups in the Boston area. So it's all people who are passionate about taking a new developer under their wing and guiding them through not just individual for like one weekend, but for 12 weeks consistently. And you can really see how mm -hmm. that person growth grows. So that's really powerful, like giving that like kind of I'm the big brother, big sister for mm -hmm, that person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So remind me again what happens on the other end. I mean, it's not like you're going to get a degree or a piece of paper or a certificate or anything, but it sounds like you're going to have something tangible. You're going to have something ready to maybe pitch to a venture accelerator. Yeah, so one of our students, for example, he developed uh, an application that is an Uber clone for Medical Mariana. So he has that life and running out of the program. He was just featured um, on, that's in Sacramento, so he was just featured on the news there. Mm -hmm. so that's what one student did. Other students, they, they want to land jobs, right? So another right. student joined a startup in L.A., the other one joined a startup in Munich in Germany. So students are all over the world. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the goal. So where can someone go if they're interested in this much more personalized and uh, much more intensive, I would imagine, um, online coding, tutoring, uh, pair programming experience? Um, yeah, they can go to thefirehostproject.com. Okay. Apply. We have pre-work pre ready. And you're good to go. And then uh, there's no deadline. I mean, they can just uh, sign up now. Is there a... Yep. We enroll new students every Monday. Okay. 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 Sounds good. Thanks, Marco, for joining us. Oh, thanks for having thanks. me. Thanks. It's good to see you again. <laughs> And, of course, uh, that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Ted Ralston and John Johnson and talk about unmanned aerial vehicles. Did you get a drone for Christmas? Did you know you weren't supposed to use it during Christmas? There are a lot of things that you need to know about these very, very po uh, powerful and popular gadgets. So, of course, we'd like to have your voice as part of this conversation, your questions. You can call 941-3689, or you can call us toll-free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live in the studio. You can tweet us your questions at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. This is BiteMarks Cafe. Hola, this is Sandy Tsukiyama, inviting you to join me Saturdays from 4 to 6 as we share music, news updates, visits with special guests, and perhaps even some Portuguese language on Brazilian experience on HPR2, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio.
I'm Joe Ferraro, and I'm with Ferraro Choi & Associates. We're architects, and we underwrite KHPR program. I can only tell you, over the 25 years or so, people have stopped me on the street and said, thank you. You support public radio. You believe in the things that we believe in, and that's why we're selecting you as an architect. Now there's recognition, and it's recognition in a good way because it's with public radio. Hawaii Public Radio, celebrating partnership, building community. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Hawaii Supply. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Ted Ralston and John Johnson. Ted is, Ted is an ex-aerospace industry executive and a well-respected consultant on unmanned aerial vehicles. John, meanwhile, is an IT specialist, but when he's not supporting his company and co-workers in IT, he is an avid drone enthusiast. And did we say enthusiast? Of course. <laughs> what are some of the key challenges facing this new industry? We'd love to hear your questions and comments. And, of course, that number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 on the neighbor islands. Ted and John, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Hey, thanks, Bert, for having us back on. Thank you. Aloha. Now, you know, Ted, uh, you know, um, the drone, this drone conversation that we had probably a, a year ago, you it's know, a, I was looking at my notes. It was fast moving. January. Uh, was one of our most popular shows, and people have been writing to us uh, through the course of 2014 asking us, when are you guys going to get another, you know, have another drone show? When are you going to ha- get, uh, get you know, people like you guys, Ted and John, to, to talk on the show about the drone? So now we have you in the studio, and maybe I'll talk with, uh, let John, since, you know, John, you're sort of new. We've got to, you know, we've got to break you in. I'm going <laughs> to ask you, um, over the Christmas holiday, which was a great time to fly your drone, were you able to take advantage of our holiday season? Officially, I think I should be saying no, absolutely not. <laughs> there was no way I could possibly fly because there was a no-fly directive that had sent, been sent out. Uh, we had a visitor to the island. I can't remember who it was. Somebody yeah, something important. About, 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 POTUS? So, POTUS, 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 whatever yeah. that is. Yeah, so uh, I wasn't able to fly for... A couple of weeks, but that's fine. Now, uh, as of the 5th of January, we're able to go to the skies again. Now, now, Ted, you know, this was uh, um, probably a, a year for a lot of Christmas gifts that were given to a lot of people. And I know, you know, Ryan and I were doing, you know, gifts to get your best friend uh, on on uh, this show and, and others and, and talking about, the, you know, the interest in, in buying um, buying your friend a unmanned aerial vehicle, and I think a lot of people might have bought one for themselves. Uh, the FCC, you know, kind of... FAA. Oh, FAA it issued this uh, no-fly uh, uh, directive. Uh, was it something that... Uh, I know a lot of people were kind of complaining about it because they had some plans over the holidays. I mean, what was your take on it? I think a lot of people probably don't understand what the, uh, what the uh, no-fly aspect is because they're not in a communication loop that lets them know that, so mm-hmm, they went out and flew mm-hmm, anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's basically to keep... Uh, Anybody from a, a malicious input type uh, activity, mm-hmm. uh, when the president's here, 
or any actually during other transits when uh, uh, chief executives of, uh, of other parts of government are coming through town, we get a shutdown as, as there as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree with what you said in the sense that there are local drone groups on Facebook and websites that are direct are focused on it. But um, because it's evolving so fast, it's not like there's a giant mailing list or Correct. phone tree where this can get out. Um, the other question that had come up. Because someone commented on, so I bought my kids the seventy dollar, uh, you know, little t- piece of toast sized drone, like this little toy buzzy, mm-hmm. most little nano, thing. right? So I went and they, we went to the park and we were flying around, crashing them, and that's why I like these cheap ones because you don't want to crash a thirteen hundred dollar drone. But the first comment when I posted was like, "Hey, you're not supposed to be flying that while the president is here." And I said, "Well, somebody, somebody posted, somebody posted that." Uh-huh. So, and, and a fair question is, is there a threshold, or is it basically don't put anything in the air with a motor on it when this FAA restriction is The restriction is 30 miles from Honolulu Airport when they're on Oahu. If they're on Big Island, it'd be a 30-mile restriction on Hilo or Kona Airport. So it's all done that way. It's standard uh, air traffic management. Mm -hmm. uh, And that that brings up a point. The point that we're getting at here is the education component and the outputting of information so people can become attentive to it. And that is the reason why the FAA is in the mindset they're in. They deal with a, a frame of reference that all pilots understand and, and air traffic managers op- mm-hmm, understand, mm-hmm. and they assume that everybody who's going to be dealing with drones thinks the same way. That's why they're so so hesitant at this point in time in terms of uh, being protective. Well, and, and this uh, no-fly really was uh, applicable to anybody who is an amateur. They, they may have, you know, even amateur, let's say, uh, airplanes were affected by this no-fly. Yes, uh, radio-controlled, but basically it's for radio-controlled airplanes. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think they allowed radio-controlled gliders and, and free-flight airplanes to operate and control-line airplanes to operate. It was a radio-control huh. that's, that's uh, potentially a weapon, and that's what's in their mind. So you said 30 miles from the airport, but wasn't the no-fly over any part of Oahu? Well, yeah, 30 miles from the airport, that's draw that circle, and there's <laughs> oh, just that's- water. Uh, I think <laughs> Kaina Point may have been open, though. Kaina Point, I oh, think yeah. you may have been able to fly out at the tip there. Yeah. Uh, I see, I see. But I think a lot of people didn't understand that and, and uh, didn't, didn't see any harm what they're doing with their Christmas gifts. Went out and flew in the local park, and frankly, no problem. Well, specifically, I remember the video that was posted like the day after Christmas of someone who loved their new drone and um, flew it directly over Kailua Bay specifically <laughs> and was very proud of his and, and unfortunately got a lot of I would say, from constructive to non-constructive comments on that practice. But I agree, um, education is the key. So, John, you're an enthusiast. You you have uh, the Phantom, which is one of the more common now consumer uh, models, and everyone's using it to take pictures and uh, flying them around. How do you keep up to date? How did you know not to go flying, even if you might have? I actually <laughs> heard from Ted. That's how I first heard oh. about it. Uh, two or three other friends had posted in some of the groups uh, there's two Facebook groups uh, specifically uh, specifically for Hawaii drone enthusiasts that I follow. One of them is, I think, Hawaii Drones, and the other one is something like the Hawaii Affiliation of Drones. And I, I stick to those two, and you get a lot of good constructive criticism in there. You get a lot of people that are willing to help out people that are you know just starting out, and you also see a lot of the blowback, like you mentioned, for the guy that went flying in Kailua Bay. You know, some people immediately answered harshly. Then somebody came in with a voice of reason saying, hey, layoff, he's just starting out. You know, we all started out at some point. And, you know, that really sinks in. You realize the the best thing we can do is educate, you know, as Ted was saying earlier, you know, get information out there. Well, mm-hmm. I, what I find fascinating, I'm in those same groups, groups too, because I would consider myself a wannabe drone owner, um, uh, is that uh, you you want to, to, to help people, but you, 
what I what I was surprised by is that there, it's not like they're all anarchists. They're all not like saying we should be able to do whatever we want anywhere we want. In fact, a good many of I would say you know very avid and successful uh, UAV operators. W- are welcoming some kind of restriction. It's not so much that they don't want restrictions, it's that right now nobody knows what they should or should not be doing. Right. There's uh, there's a lot of confusion. The FAA has been promising regulations and has been claiming regulations. Uh, let me be careful about this. I think that uh, at one point there was a uh, there was a, a lawsuit against a person that flew for I think the University of Virginia, mm-hmm. and that lawsuit ended up with uh, it being thrown out from federal court. Then it was appealed up to the NTSB, and there was a decision that said that uh, I think the decision was pretty narrow. It said that they can define a drone as an aircraft, so it's going back. I don't know what the current state is, but there's a lot of confusion as to what is legal and what is not legal. There's a lot of regulations and recommendations, but what has the force of law is a little bit grayer. Yeah, and that's that's true. And the, the FAA is uh, in a in a betwixt and between situation mm-hmm. because they've been doing for seventy or eighty years the management of uh, aircraft that have brains and eyes in the cockpit, and now they have to deal with those brains and eyes being on the ground or not there at all, and their system just doesn't doesn't compute. They have uh, significant uh, liability and and laws to uphold themselves, and until they get someone to change those laws, like Congress through this exemption uh, situation. Uh, they're they're stuck with the path they're going in, but it's, it's really important to understand that the FAA is looking for every all the help they can get. They're looking for creative solutions. They're looking for ideas that take that go forward in a big way. We have an event take or an oper- an activity taking place in Pahoa right now, where the University of Hawaii Hilo, mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. group out there under uh, Ryan Peroy and uh, Nick Turner, who've been on the show are um, running uh, lava surveys with the UAVs there with a proper certificate of authorization. The FAA is involved. The local incident commander, Daryl Oliveira, is telling them when they can go, when they can't go. They're coordinating with the, the tourist helicopters. It's all done right out in front. And the FAA thinks that's a great deal because it's all being done, you know, openly and, and uh, everybody's getting benefit, get, getting benefit for it. And people aren't being put at risk, which is the whole idea right. in mm-hmm, the first place. Mm-hmm. It's a really good example. Well, you know, we're talking to uh, Ted Ralston, uh, a consultant who uh, uh, does a lot of work in unmanned aerial vehicles, and, uh, and John Johnson, uh, a UAV enthusiast. And uh, we want to welcome you to Bite Marsh Cafe. If you want to give us a call here, the number is 941-3689, and from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. We want to welcome Larry from Hawaii Island to Bite Marsh Cafe. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Um, so I had a question about a technology that might fall in this gray area. Um, I, for one, was not at all aware of the POTUS restriction. I'm not sure it would apply at all on the big island no, where I am. I <laughs> but uh, there's a class of powered UAVs that are bird-like and flaps its wings instead of using a traditional motor. Uh-huh. But they are quite agile. They fly up to 50 miles an hour. Uh, they're meant to emulate raptors as a bird control method. Oh. Are they are they uh, uh, remote controlled? They are, and they're quite amazing. Uh, however, they don't buzz. They don't have a propeller. They, they flap their wings and fly like a bird. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, well, I'll let uh, Ted... Uh, Chime in on his, uh, you know, opinion on that. This is really interesting. Can they carry a payload? I'd like to get one. Well, but, uh, they're 
fairly large size. They have a wingspan. It varies, of course, but they weigh three or four pounds. They can be the size of an owl, so a wingspan of several feet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, again, meant to scare other birds, so <laughs> you can make them do quite agile maneuvers and strike things, I suppose. I've never seen that happen on purpose because they are expensive. But, well, uh, yeah, uh, they're pretty... Well, to the uh, question that you had raised, uh, the, as from the FAA perspective, they would consider that a radio-controlled aircraft or a drone like anything else, regardless of the propulsion. Even if it's not, propel- not propelled, if it was a sailplane, it's still a, still a uh, radio-controlled aircraft, mm-hmm. and so it fits in that category. And until... Okay. The rules come out this year and get reacted to by the public, and we get this all straightened out. Uh, these issues will continue to come up. Mm-hmm. But thank you for calling, and yeah, now I'm going sir. to be yep. spending my evening Googling raptor-like <laughs> wing-flapping <laughs> UAVs. Is that on your Christmas you. list? Yes, yeah, it is. Thank Send you. me the link, will you, when you get it? <laughs> I will. Okay. Well, uh, so, you know, in terms of uh, some of these uh, uh, new devices, uh, John, I mean, were there some... Uh, gifts on the market this year that were, let's say, above and beyond what was currently being offered, let's say, earlier in 2014? Well, right at the end of uh, 2014, there was another uh, professional-level uh, drone that came out. Uh, DJI released it. It was called the Inspire One. Mm. And this is really interesting because it goes to the next level. It's a, It has a 4K camera on board. Mm-hmm. Uh, 4K. Capable, uh-huh. Yeah, it's capable of 4K. Uh, but this one actually allows you to have a second person uh, flying. So you've got one person actually doing your piloting, and you've got one person doing the camera work. So you're actually separating across two different controllers. And that's something in the turnkey market, like the earlier Phantoms, the mm-hmm. Phantom 1, Phantom 2, you basically had one control that does everything. You're looking at, you know, you're looking at the first-person view through your iPhone or through a, a monitor. So now this new one, you're going to have two guys with two different uh, setups, one doing the piloting, one actually doing the camera work. So you can separate the, the functions there. You'll still have to, I guess, verbally work together to you know do your framing and compositions and everything else. But that's really fascinating. And the other thing is uh, uh, we've got CES going on right now uh, yes. in Las Vegas. And I believe Intel released a, uh, a wristband uh, drone. And that sounds really interesting. You can uh, launch it off of your wrist, and it'll come up, do a selfie. And maybe give you a haircut <laughs> at the same time. So, I saw that, and you know, it it had this capability of sort of you know elevating its arms and then little propellers, and then it sort of launched off your wrist. I didn't see it. I've I've been seeing ads for that for a while. I don't know if it started out as a Kickstarter. No, right, I guess right. if it's Intel, it wouldn't have been a Kickstarter project. Project, but I've seen a lot of uh, notices about that, and I just get nervous because anything that's going to take off from my wrist. And come up near my face to take a picture. <laughs> I I really do have that fear of a haircut. Right, well, right. you know, one of the things that comes up a lot in, in these in groups of because people have been flying remote control aircraft, airplanes, helicopters for for years and years and years. Um, and then someone goes and gets something, flies it in a restaurant, hits someone in the head, and the comment is, "Well, this is why we can't have nice things." I mean, uh, the fact of the matter is, the availability of it is growing so fast that even if there was regulations, it's almost impossible to imagine uh, being able to to tamp that down. That enthusiasm is enormous. That's exactly right. The, uh, the miniaturization, the reliability, the small pieces, the uh, high rate production and low cost makes these things so available and so capable. And the ability to design so many different functions in outstrips the ability to define their mission and right. therefore put a regulation on them. And that's one of the issues that the FAA is coming up with. So what's going to have to happen in the FAA mindset is a move into understanding lethality. If there isn't a lethal aspect to the thing, 
then it fits into a category that has a lot less restrictions on it. If there is a lethal aspect, then it would certainly fall into the more uh, more carefully regulated domain. And mm-hmm. that's the change that the FAA is going through mentally right now. Mm. But again, I, I did want to emphasize, as I uh, said earlier, that uh, we had a couple of meetings in the last last couple of conferences with uh, Jim Williams, who runs the FAA directorate at the FAA, or the UAV directorate at the FAA. They're looking for all the help they can get in terms of ways to move forward here. Again, I mentioned Pahoa was very successful. And they're giving us many ideas and many uh, ways in which we can operate within the current rules and yet be successful. And that's what they're looking for right now while the uh, two or three-year gestation period occurs while the, when, as the rules are finalized. It's a more collaborative mindset. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I want to ask you more about that. And is that in, in Hawaii or is that some on the, on the mainland? Somewhere? Everywhere. It's on every. Okay. Uh, you know, we're talking to Ted uh, Ralston and John Johnson about drones. And if, of course, you have a question or comment, feel free to give us a call, 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome Gordon from Kapolei to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Yes. Um, I do area photography, and it's not fair. I follow rules and all the regulations. There's rules out there that people don't even know of. Mm-hmm. You can't fly within five miles of an airport. They don't care. They don't know the rules. You want to see a 747 fly next to them. Um, there's, you can't fly over 400 feet elevation. They don't care. They want to see the whole island from this point go straight up. And if they collide into an aircraft, are they going to hold responsibility? You know, I follow rules, laws, and regulations, and it's not fair for they're breaking the law and they ground everybody. If someone gets into a car accident, they don't ban everybody from driving. They just punish the one that did the bad. Right, right. And so um, y- your question is? My question is that they should have more <clears throat> classes for these people who find them on the Internet and don't know nothing about the laws, the rules, the regulations, and get a card showing that you went to the class. No, that's a, that's a great point. That's a great point. Uh, John, do you have a comment about that? Uh, yes. Actually, uh, one of the ones that's coming out now, the uh, one of, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the DJI, which uh, produces the Phantom, which is one of the really fast-growing uh, uh, drones out there, uh, they are putting uh, into their firmware, they're actually putting in restrictions so that if you're in a certain range of an airport, it will force you down to the right altitude or won't let you fly at all. So there are... Uh, manufacturer uh, developments there that will help, you know, with that problem. But, you know, this is why a lot of people in the drone community, the responsible people, want to see regulation. We do want regulation and education. I think that the people are just concerned that uh, we want it to be really specific to drone technology. You know, we're worried that, you know, am I going to have to go out and get a pilot's license? Am I going to go out and have to go out and do all kinds of other, you know, onerous, you know, things to, you know, you know, licensing to to be able to fly a drone? And will it make sense really in the end? So I I think that education and regulation is, it's key. A lot of people want that. We just want sensible regulation. Mm -hmm. And to the point Gordon raised, uh, and kind of the point John was talking about a bit ago here, it looks like all the regulations coming forth the next 10 years are going to require that pilot's license uh, factor. So the the main pilot in command is going to have to have been certified up to private pilot uh, level. I think the observer is going to have to have a lower level, but some form of formal training. So, Gordon, the concerns you had are certainly quite uh, recognized and are being addressed. But again, how many times have we talked about education here and outreach and getting information out so that everybody gets an idea 
and gets gets mm-hmm. some, find somewhere to turn to to get the information they need. No, and that's a great point, Ted. I mean, and I think we should talk a little bit more about the community because I think you uh, both represent the community, but this community is growing rapidly. So we'll hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Ted Rawson and John Johnson about the growing opportunity for unmanned aerial vehicles. And, of course, how do privacy concerns shape the future of this industry? Of course, we'd love to hear from you. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. On January 10th in the Atherton studio, it's Hawaii's newest Kihoalu artist, 20-year-old Sean Robbins of Puna, selected for NPR's From the Top and a protege of slack key master Cyril Pahinui. Robbins will share with Atherton audiences his distinctive slack key originals. That's Saturday, January 10th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets at hprtickets.org or by calling 955-8821 during business hours. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Ruth Gendler, author of The Book of Qualities, Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the qualities of creativity. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back. This is Mike Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozawa, and we're talking to Ted Ralston and John Johnson about unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, and shaping policy to fly them. Well, and before we get to our conversation about the community and how it's evolving, uh, we want to give you a chance to chime in on this conversation. Of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome Richard from Honolulu to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hello, everybody. Hi. Yeah, I, you know, I'm on my neighborhood board, the Makiki Punch Bowl, and I brought this up about six months ago, my concerns about the area of safety and privacy. Mm-hmm. And my general view is that the technology, the, the uh, you know, it's so much fun. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's such a enticing technology that's being put ahead of safety and privacy. And, uh, boy, these things are going to be buzzing around. And, and I remember years ago looking online, and uh, back then, uh, the most dangerous toys on the top ten most dangerous toys those toy helicopters were often in those, you know, in those year-end uh, surveys. So, yeah, what do your guests think about that? I'm very concerned about safety. You know, these. I saw a, a video of uh, they were serving somebody in a restaurant with a drone. Chipotle, yes. Yeah, and that that's just crazy. It you know, did backfire on them. Walking through there, and they've got their cell phone in front of their face, and they'll, you know, blind themselves or. or yeah, uh, yeah. Like, like no, great, great point, Richard. And uh, I think uh, you know because the technology is becoming so not only ubiquitous but uh, easily affordable, and there's such a demand for it that I think uh, it's moving much quicker than any kind of regulation. But, but John, you know, when when you talk about um, sort of the technology moving so fast and and uh, the concerns that I think a lot of people have, whether it's safety and and things like uh, privacy. I think the large portion of the community uh, is conscientious, is responsible, but then you're going to have the outliers that maybe take a chance, push the envelope. How does the community sort of deal with that, and and how do we sort of get to a point where it is safe and there is privacy that is is uh, being considered? That's a good question. Um, 
for me personally, what I do is, uh, well, there's two words really that come into play here, and you may not hear it very often, but common sense. Mm. Or, you know, common sense is one of the things that we really need to take into effect. You don't want to fly in, you know, large groups. You don't want to fly around in tight spaces. And if you understand how, you know, RC, you know, devices work, you really don't want to be around places that have a lot of interference. You don't want to, you know, there, there's a lot of things to, to think about, you know, that make it, you know, that could make this potentially a dangerous you know, tool. So I try to avoid people in general. I, I personally do mostly landscape uh, imaging. And when I'm doing that, I'm getting away from people as much as I can. Mm -hmm. So I'm out, uh, I'm flying out pretty far and away from people. But when I do come in, I'm conscious of, you know, where are people around me. Um, in the community, we are able to see what other people are sharing. And we can see such as the, you know, the video of the guy flying in Kailua during the POTUS's stay here. Uh, we can see that and kind of give constructive, you know, criticism and say, hey, uh, you know, it's great that you're learning to fly and welcome to the community. But, you know, we do have this no fly going on right now. So, you know, we can educate each other. Um, there's nothing, though, to stop people that just bought something straight off the Internet to go out and do things, you know, that are, you know, dangerous. You know, the, the, the key is education. And it would be great if manufacturers also, you know, helped in that and, you know, sent, you know, some source materials to people when they did sell them that object to kind of get them a little bit educated before they go out and fly. Mm -hmm. uh, well, thanks, uh, thanks, Richard, for uh, giving us that call. And uh, we want to welcome Jeff from Kaneohe to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hi, welcome. Um, my uh, question is about privacy. And we have uh, one guy, a neighbor who over here who has a drone, like one of those twelve or $1,300 ones, and he's really good with his, but then there's, uh, we don't know who it is, another guy that's flying up the little stream valley and mm. taking his camera drone right up to people's windows. And, right, and uh, I heard, yeah, I heard one recently where... Uh, that concerns me. Yeah, they're flying them right in front of people's windows in the evening and shining lights in the window. <laughs> that's... That's ridiculous. It, right? It's it's really pushing, you know, and you wouldn't want that, you know, first of all, the, the good thing about the technology right now is it's loud enough that you know it's there. Mm -hmm. You know, it sounds like a swarm of bees. You're going to you're going to hear it if it's near. And remember, these cameras, uh, most of them have a very wide angle lens on it. Like the one I use, the DJI one is a five millimeter lens. That's very wide angle. And your ability to get detail in that you know, on a personal level is not that great. I mean, when you're, you know, up in the air and you'd be very lucky to get, you know, identifications of people once you're beyond maybe 20, 30 feet away. But I think it's a good call. We also had uh, Jen on Twitter saying, I was swimming and a drone was hovering over the area. I was swimming and I felt totally uncomfortable. Ted, um, I'm really big on privacy. I still use encrypted email, PGP and stuff like that. But on the other hand, I'm wondering if there's a middle ground, but how, how do you answer somebody who says, I don't like the idea that it's possible to fly a drone up 10 stories outside my condo and look in my window? To the point John was making a bit ago, uh, uh, recognition or even identification or even getting any specifics on people from anything other than 20 feet away is pretty tough. It's really tough to really pick anything out. You see a head, but the head all looks the same. It's got some hair, and that's pretty much it. But uh, the, the larger point here is going to be the technology has to come along to match these concerns. There's going to have to be uh, technology in the, in the flight command system on these drones that matches the authority that's been granted to use it. And so that, as John was saying, if it's uh, geofenced away from a certain area, you can't get into that area. If you're above a certain altitude, you get an automatic power off. You have all these safety issues that are associated with 
cultural safety as well as uh, physical safety have to be brought into the picture, and that's what the rules the FAA is working on will mandate. So we'll, we'll see that come up as the... And, and, you know, I'm thinking like ham radio, there's a community, you have to get a license. You could broadcast without a license, but there's self-correction and education. Um, one thing that I hear a lot is like, well, I don't want drones because they can take pictures over a fence or because they can take a picture of me at the beach. But people can take a picture of you at the beach without a drone or take a picture over a fence without a drone. So I think it's the activity or even the intent that you're going to want to regulate and not the tool because the tools could always change. Right. It's the behavior issue that we're talking about right. here. And that's that's the thing that's going to – that's a respect and common sense, as John said. And that's where – once again, education comes into the picture. But if the systems are also given a, a technical barrier from getting into that circumstance mm-hmm. in the first place, that gives you that second layer of protection, which is what FAA is looking for. Now, how do we prevent something, let's say, really controversial from happening? Let's say, you know, somebody sees a drone flying out of their, you know, in, in their window. They go out, they take a bat, and then they, you know, whack it down. And then the owner of the drone wants to confront them because they destroyed his property. And then it becomes a, you know, a big sort of issue, right? And, and then now the media gets a hold of it, and it takes another life of its own. And then everybody wants to crack down on, on drone, you know, use, right? We've actually seen something like that happening. I think there was a case in Texas uh, where somebody decided that uh, they didn't like a drone flying and they shot it down with mm-hmm, a shotgun. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it was over the land owned by the person flying the drone. So that was pretty cut and dry. You know, the person, you know, that uh, shot it down had to pay for damages and was arrested. But there's other cases. I know of uh, two cases here. Uh, a friend in, Waila- uh, in Wailua had a drone flying over his property. And he wasn't there. He's actually in the hospital at the time. But his neighbor told him, hey, you know, you've got a drone flying over your uh, land. You know, I'm, my personal thought is he was probably just doing landscape shots or something like that. Beautiful valley. But, uh, you know, who knows what he was doing. The second was a friend out on a boat. And all of a sudden a drone came up and was buzzing his deck mm-hmm. with just him, his girlfriend, and his dog on the boat. So, I mean, there's just – these are privacy issues that, of course, the public is going to be concerned about that. You know, the drone gives you the ability to do things, you know, do behaviors that are already outlawed. But really, we don't need the extra litigation, or we don't need the new laws. We already have laws to protect against the behavior. We just have, you know, modified the method of, you know, performing the behavior. You know, we want to take care of our patient uh, listeners here, and uh, we have a couple of callers uh, lined up here. Joe from uh, Maui, welcome to uh, Bite Marks Cafe. Aloha, how are you? Good, good. So I have a question. You know, we're talking about people and individuals, and yet the police department and various secret agencies of the government fly around, and they invade our privacy all the time. And we know from Snowden that the NSA people were using the NSA files illegally just to tap on their girlfriends or significant others or whatever. Why? I haven't heard any discussion about the maluse of uh or the invasion of our privacy that the government is doing regularly. And I believe many police departments and other agencies have already have license to fly drones. I mean, those people are probably committing more offenses than regular people do. Well, that that's an excellent comment. Thank you for your call. I mean, sure. I remember last year there was the attempt to pass a law here that said only law enforcement could fly drones, and a lot of people are saying those are the last people I would want to have fly drones. Ted, your thoughts? Sure. Uh, in, that, in that particular category of law enforcement and such, the chain of evidence applies. And so the, the drone can only be used when there's a path by which the information coming out of it is going to be controlled, protected, and uh, and, and um, isolated, and only certain people have access to it. 
So it's, it's, no, it's just like any other evidence in the law enforcement domain. It's just a different way to, to hang a camera to collect. Right. So the there evidence. are controls in place, but you could, yeah. of course, be still skeptical right. and I think, of I think, those I think what Joe is also bringing up is what about the stuff that we don't know about, right? I mean, if there's stuff that, uh, let's say there's yeah. a lot more, um, uh, let's say, camera cams on the um, um, police cars or they're, they're having, you know, let's say, cameras on their vests or whatever, and they're recording whatever incident that might occur. I mean, that's part of the public record, right? Uh, but then what about the stuff that we don't know about? Well, they have to have uh, a, a search warrant to, to go collect information on you. So that, that still applies regardless of the censor uh, mechanism. Actually, on the civil side, what, what we saw recently here was somebody who was talking about a wearable jewelry mm-hmm. that records five, every five seconds, records a picture of what your day is like, and then you put it on uh, your right. Facebook page. Right, right. That, that's a gigantic invasion of privacy right there. How about these guys with these GoPros on sticks running around the beach? And, well, and, that was uh, probably part of the issue with, uh, with the Google Glass, right? I mean, walking yeah. into the bathroom with their Google Glass on, and, you know, that's a privacy issue. Well, thanks, Joe, for uh, calling that in. And we want to also welcome uh, Vince from Kaimuki to Bike Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Uh, yeah, that's Viz. Yeah, I was just Viz. commenting, uh, I guess, you know, saying, hey, this is great entrepreneurial uh, technology. I mean, why shut it down before people even have a chance to reach its potential? I mean, why not regulate it after the fact? Well, that, that's a great point because I think we haven't really even talked about the commercial opportunities with some of these aerial, vehicle, uh, aerial photography. Uh, John, I mean, you're doing some great photographs from, you know, from your drone. I mean, it's, it's really cool stuff, but you can't sell it, right? That's right. Um, right now, well, that, that's uh, actually I can't say yes or no. Um, <laughs> if I was to talk to the FAA, uh, the official word is that, no, I can't use it for commercial activity. Um, there are no laws on the book that say that specifically, so it's questionable. Uh, I don't want to spend you know hundreds of thousands of dollars in litigation, so my yeah. short answer is no, I can't use it commercially. So um, I'm waiting for something like that, but we do need regulation because we don't want people going out there spending tons of money on this technology only to get out there and then have regulations put in place that means they actually can't run their business and they're out all this money. So mm-hmm. we don't want to have people go and then just play catch up with the regulations. Right. Now, I, I work in real estate. My day job is at Web Information Service, and we are always fielding conversations and questions about drone use, which is technically not uh, allowed for. But just yesterday or just this week, the FAA did as they're processing all these very specific individual applications for an opportunity to use a drone for commercial purposes, real estate was one of those applications. Absolutely. There's uh, there's five different categories that the uh, like the Congress told the NTSB they're going to have to get the FAA to generate exemptions for uh, two years ago when the FAA was uh, revitalized and, and refunded. And uh, those areas uh, are public safety, uh, agriculture, uh, and uh, uh, flare stack inspection power grid inspection, mm. and uh, movie making. And the idea is that if the use of that drone in replacement for a risk-bearing manned operation, yeah. such as flare stack inspection in the, at the oil refineries, if putting a drone up there instead of a guy on a ladder makes a lot more sense, mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And we'll help you with the paperwork to go forward. So mm-hmm. that was what I was referring to. The FAA had met with us a couple of weeks ago and said, Look, let's get really creative about this. Not only is there going to be the need for inspection of flare stacks, you've got to do training for flare stacks. Mm-hmm. You've got to have uh, university programs come up with the sensor mechanism so there's, you can extend these things out 
odd infinitum. And I like the and, case in, the, in Arizona that we're all talking about in real estate circles because he got the uh, authorization to do it, but he needs a pilot license. He needs insurance. He needs to have a spotter with him. So while he's piloting, someone else who's specifically watching for hazards and risk to other people. So I agree. I think that they're doing their best to, to make room for this. Uh, we want to welcome Al, who's patiently waiting, uh, from Mililani. Welcome to the show. Yes, hi. I have a question, and maybe I need a little education on drone technology. Is the is the controller uh, that controls the drone, uh, the communication discrete and unique to that controller and the drone? In other words, like my cell phone number is unique to me, that there cannot be an overlap of uh, someone else trying to control the drone? That's an excellent yeah, question. Yeah, John, uh, how, how, how unique is that controller? Um, it, it varies from manufacturer to manufacturer. Um, there was something that came out a while back. Uh, somebody was strapping a Raspberry Pi with a bunch of different uh, pieces of software on it onto a Parrot drone, and they were able to go out and fly around other Parrot drones and hijack the link. And this is a really cool thing that was demonstrated on YouTube, and I thought it was fascinating. But um, DJI, uh, which is the ones that I, the uh, brand that I use, they actually have an encrypted uh, communication, so mm-hmm. I don't think it's possible for people to uh, mm-hmm. to hijack that. But you know, it really depends on the manufacturer, I believe. That's so, a really good point, and uh, Alice, a great question. That's one of the four items that the FAA is most concerned about: is the spectrum control, mm-hmm. spectrum, and 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 the the uh, safety in that spectrum. And as, as John mentioned, spoofing. And hijacking are, are, are can be done. You can not only can you spoof the uh, uh, the command and control signal, you can also spoof the down video and feed yesterday's video to today's operation and cause great confusion. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, you can hijack the GPS satellites and give fake GPS information to the uh, to the system and cause it to go off off schedule. So there's all kinds of mm-hmm hacking that can go on here, right. and that's a main concern right. in now, all of this. Or even for someone trying to interfere because they don't like drones. Now, it was <laughs> a year ago we had this conversation, but last year was the year we had that uh, piece of legislation to try to limit use, and as we heard from Senator Glenn Wakai last uh, week, it's possible we're going to see legislation like that this year. Uh, Ted, if somebody wants to get involved, either learn more or become part of the process to help make come up with solutions like you, is there a resource they should go to, a, a website that they can check out or get in touch with you? Yeah, certainly. I'll be glad to uh, make my information available, ted.ralston at uh, gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing is uh, UAVators, uh, U-A-V, and then aviators, uh-huh. uh, .com is a, is a great source mm-hmm. of uh, where this is all developing. And you, and you said real quickly that um, NDPTC is, is doing something? Yes, right down the street from us, well, actually on the other side of town, and, and NDPTC, National Disaster Preparedness Training Center here in Honolulu, which is a part of RCUH and part of FEMA. It's all tied together with DHS. They're developing a program that's going to start up on March 23rd, I believe, okay. uh, in uh, UAVs and disaster operations. However, disaster operations, law enforcement, archaeology, uh, uh, natural resources, is all the same at the end of the day. It's well, we'll, we'll definitely put up, uh, put up that link. Uh, uh, John, you want to yep. share your uh, website? Uh, right now I've got some stuff up uh, to give you an idea of what uh, is possible with aerial photography. Um, go check out uh, johnshawaii.com or www.johnshawaii.com. Uh, with an H in there, and um, I also have some stuff coming up on uh, Instagram as well at uh, at uh, One Breath Photo. Sounds good. Ted Ralston and John Johnson are both unmanned aerial vehicle enthusiasts, and of course we want to thank you both for joining us today. 
Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot, Bert. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about Hawaii's experimental program to stimulate competitive research, or EPSCOR. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. Of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Twilight Sad and a song called Last January. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Don't die.